Hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. In this episode, Paul Farron talks to stage and screen legend Stephen Burkoff about his feature film adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's classic chiller, Telltale Heart, which is now available on digital platforms. I enjoyed the film. Oh, thank uh, you. Big fan of Edgar Allan Poe as well. Oh, uh, good. Congratulations. Tell me this. It's, it's a monologue you, you produced many, many years ago. What brought you back to it? Was it through the director or just to interest yourself in making it as Before a film? Before I did it on stage. And then when I videoed it, I did it on the, the stage version. Yes, I saw some of it. On the stage. And that was very effective, but it wasn't brilliant. It wasn't badly videoed. Um... That's all from one area. So suddenly I had the idea to make it into a film and to take it, open it out, and so we see him where he lived, the staircases, the doors, the police, uh, the running down the stairs, the, the obsession with his, you know, compulsive cleaning and, uh, and all that in the film, I thought would open it out a lot more and make it more exciting. And also I could improvise. Again, it's a beautiful embracing of theatrical and cinema. Yes. Well, thank you. Well, I hope so. Edgar Allan Poe, what drew you to Edgar Allan Poe in the first place? That particular story, it's a, it's a beautiful story. I think it's obviously one even those that don't know Edgar Allan Poe would be very familiar with. It's probably the, one, the first scary story I ever read in my life that scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> You're with the monster for the entire story, but it's still so frightening. Of course, yes, it is. Well, what he does, he digs into the deepest horrors, fears, tremors and, and sensitivities we have. And that's what he does. And he's hearing, he imagines he, imagines he hears things. He, his senses are so acute that um, he feels quite normal if he somehow gets rid of one obsession so that by killing the old man, he's rid of that horrible thing that he's living with. But then another obsession comes in when he thinks he hears his heartbeat. It's a one, it's the cleverness of it is. He's like a psychiatrist, bro. So when you get rid of one obsession and you're happy, another obsession will creep in. And that's so true. I don't know if you've had these obsessions. I have. And you get another bug. You get, oh, Christ. And you deal with that bug. And then another one comes in. So you never get rid of it. What you've got to get rid of is what produces the bug in the first place, you see. And that's that's the difficult one. Well, we probably won the first orders that wrote um, insanity into heart. Yeah. And it's, so, and it's interesting that you, you also did some wonderful work with Franz Kafka adaptations, including oh, yes, the yes. Morpheus, which yeah, beautiful theatre, beautiful theatre. Do you think they have any stronger similarities than just that, or is it a superficial one? I think it's a great deal of similarity. I think they both suffered inordinately from thinking about things beyond the need. So it becomes, once you overthink, it becomes, starts to grow. So the thing you worry, if Tafka was worried about whether to see his fiance or his girlfriend, and he worried about it, worried, got on a train, and actually got there, and then he started to panic, and then he got the train back. It became insane. And so that what happens with Poe. You think about it, and when you think about it too much, you start, it starts to disintegrate, 
and reveal demons that are within it. Mm-hmm. Something else. So that he was going to his girlfriend very happy. And as he's thinking and obsessing and worrying and really being over concerned, and what does he she think of me? And am I good enough? And am I you start to everything starts to fall apart. So that way they're quite connected. The man toe in the telltale heart, you know, just seeing the eyes unpleasant to pay no attention. But he keeps thinking and thinking and thinking. And in the end, it becomes much more. It starts to invade the deeper recesses of his obsessions. So it's um, very similar to people who've got to wash their hands all the time. Do it once, to do it more, until eventually, what are you washing? You're, you're trying to wash your body away of yourself. So they're, they're terrible obsessions and very malevolent kind of feelings to have but everybody seems to have them to a greater lesser extent but most people can't control it after a while mm-hmm. but for others who cannot they eventually become very ill or if they've got the money to go to psychiatrists and you know it can, can become absolutely terrible and we see a lot of that in those kind of writers. Yes, yes. Tell me this, the, the production itself, uh, what was your relationship with the director? I mean, I heard you talking about Kurosawa. I was on YouTube there recently, and you were, ta- you were introducing The Hidden Fortress. Yes. And you were talking about the relationship between Kurosawa and Mifune as this perfect, yes. perfect moment of director and actor. Yes. What do you think that quality is? Is it, is it something you can point to or is it just this weird magic that comes along from the right relationships I think it comes from a a feeling of number one a high respect and number two an an inordinate uh, affection so Mm -hmm. with directors who have got maybe a bit respect they don't love me too much and very often they want to kind of skewer what I do pick at it and find fault and um, make suggestions which are inane and I have to deal with because he's that's his role in life, the director. And you must always listen to your director because sometimes they can be very good. But when you have affection plus respect, and that's what some directors have with some actors, and they're few and far between, but they're very exceptional when they're there, and you you can count them, but the exceptional ones are like Elia Kazan <coughs> with Marlon Brando, Shuri mm-hmm. Mifune with Kurosawa, um, say, well, he was the very allied director of Jean-Louis Barrault, oh. his enfant de Paris, I think Marcel Carney. Marcel Carney, yes. Uh, I don't know, would you put Herzog and Kinski into that mix? They produce some amazing work, but the relationship is so volatile. And well, He was like that with everybody. Well, but I would true. say, yes, that would have been a great mix. But Kinski was so self-obsessed that he, he, he sometimes became kind of damaged by his own obsession. Yeah. Whereas if you listen to Kinski, in the first films, they worked out brilliantly. And Kinski yeah. adored him. 
And that's all you need. You need adoration from the director and one from the actor to the director. I've worked with many directors who actually should be shot. <laughs> True. Well, again, do you think there's a huge difference between theatre direction and film direction? Oh, completely different, yes. Uh, have you had good times on films, uh, on many films, as uh, an actor? I mean, all right. But it's so different because on film, you're only part of the whole equation. Yes. So you're saved if you're playing the lead. You're only 10, 20% of the film. Whereas the cameraman is even more important. The lighting man is phenomenally important. Um, the sound is incredibly important. The other actors. Uh, so the director is talking and smiling to you and talking and holding forth and giving you opinions. But back of his mind, he's thinking, oh, you know, I've got only an hour. I've got to get that fucking shot. I've got to do that. But try to help the, the actor. But mm -mm. Uh, it's not, it's totally different. And t tell me yourself, when did you get the bug or the desire to to become an actor? Well, I thought I always wanted to be something to do with the theatre when I was a kid because I didn't know what else to do. And um, I used to do some play acting at school and the, the teacher thought I was all right and they always found me quite funny. And then when I went to, I better went to grammar school and um, I went to a very bad grammar school in the end uh, which was um, run by a, a whole lot of um, desiccated old farts who were the leftovers because all the young teachers had gone to war. Many of them yes. had been killed. So they had this uh, attitude of discipline. So I, I didn't learn anything. And not learning anything, I had to rely on myself. And in the end, I, I had no skill. No one said to me, what would you like to do? Would you like to be maybe an architect or maybe uh, a tailor or maybe this? No one ever said to me that. Mm -hmm. So I left, not knowing anything, walking the streets, looking at the ads in the evening standard for Office Junior. The winter, I didn't know why I was there, except to earn the money. So I, I dug into myself and I said, well, I've got to be an actor because I have no skill. I have no education, I have no degrees, I have no mastery of anything, I have no attainments, I never went to university, I'm a bum. I can be an actor. <laughs> and everything is gone. Everything got left with nothing. Or you can be a painter, but I wasn't that good painting, or an actor, or a boxer, or a gangster. And um, I know... Shakespeare is one of your particular loves. You did a marvellous monologue on Shakespearean villains. All right, yes. In fact, I'd like to talk about monologues for a minute because I think it's a much underrated method of theatre. I've done them, I've produced them myself over the years, and they always seem to be talked about in that lazy fashion of it's a cheap method of expressing yourself in theatre. I think it's a lot deeper than that, and it has much deeper possibilities, and you've shown it yourself in your own monologues. Yes, yes. Well, I found that Shakespeare was a really high definition of a writer and also uh, was the deepest thinker into the psychology of man and woman and what they feel, think, need, what frustrates them, what, hate, what annoys them, what they have passions for, what they have an inordinate greed for. He manages to sift all those different things about the human condition in a way which is utterly astonishing. 
And so I found that this gave me a sense of a bit, bit of credibility because I left school with, I say, no degrees, nothing. So once I started learning a bit of Shakespeare, I felt a little better. I felt I was learning like an instrument, like learning the piano. And I felt very validated. And mm -hmm. so once I started Shakespeare, you know, I tried to work for the companies. I couldn't get in uh, to the uh, the RSC. And uh, I, there were one or two crappy rep companies. I did some Shakespeare for these shit companies. Mm -hmm. But then I decided to begin directing so I could guide my own particular engine you know, on, on my particular vehicle and to the right direction. And I didn't care too much for the skill of directors. Uh, not too much. I think some were very good, but there were more that were useless because they didn't train. They had no skill. If you're a dancer, you become a choreographer. Then you teach everybody yeah. as a choreographer everything you've learned over the years. And if you're a boxer and you become a trainer and you teach and you become a great trainer, same thing with being a singer or being, you know, anything to do with that has a specific skill. So particularly, you know, whether you're uh, a choreographer, a singer, a musician, you hear how they teach. I've heard musicians teach. It was most phenomenal. But when you're a theatre director, they don't know fucking anything. <laughs> how can you teach an actor if you've not been an actor? How can you teach a boxer if you've just come off the street? How can you teach a choreographer? You can't. In some ways, one place where they can come off the street out of university and know fuck all, and that's opera. <laughs> they have an idea. And so what directors need, and they get great reviews, they need help. So when you do an opera, even a, a drama, you have a movement director. That movement, you, you've, you've got to do it yourself. And then they have a voice coach. Then he comes in. And then they have a dance director, because you can't, of course, possibly do that. And then they have all these people coming in, and you sit there on your on your fat ass, and you know you know totally nothing, but you have an idea. Let's do this like a Fellini film, or let's do this like a, a Strindberg play, or let's do this like you know uh, a Marsikani movie, or let's stage it like a Wagner. You have an idea, then. You have an assistant director who does it. So you can sit there asleep for about five weeks and then get great reviews. <laughs> A bit like some Hollywood blockbusters. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, as you say, you wrote your own material. Um, you've adapted plays. You've done original plays. One of your most famous ones is East, if I'm right. Yes. yes. And that, again, you were writing from where you came from. You were writing from the East End. Um, was that a particular... I was using my own self as an autobiographical material, thinking that's best to try and define and to analyze and to peel back your personality, peeling back yourself almost layer by layer, by skin by skin, peel yourself back to your very core. And then you'll find something there which is absolutely fascinating. That's what Shakespeare did. He peeled everything back. So in all his speeches, he analyzes it to death. And so even in to be or not to be, or that is the question, whether it is noble in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or 
take arms, maybe fight back by posing in them, then uh, to die, and, uh, to sleep, to sleep. Oh, and then there's a dream, now there's a, there's a rub, put in that sleep, oh fuck. Now he's talking about the, not only this is like a sleep, but the dreams, and then the dreams may even be worse. He analyzes everything backwards, inside out, and that is what's so brilliant, because in the analysis, he improves the human being. There was one chap in America called, I think his name was Bloom, a great academic who said Shakespeare invented the human man because he defined what it was to be a proper man or woman. He defined what our expectation and what our aspirations were. And that Shakespeare defined it because in every one of his plays, he actually draws the most vivid description of what we are, uh, which is just so incredible. And um, so therefore, whilst I'm not Shakespeare, I I look to my life, what I've done, to the jobs I've had, life as an actor, written a lot of plays about actors, which I find quite fascinating, <clears throat> though other people, producers particularly, don't want them. But I've always wanted to kind of delve, delve, delve. And so plays that have involved me in delving are the plays like, say, Salome, because I found it beyond beautiful. Mm. But you produced in the gate in Dublin. It, yes, in the gate. Yeah, in 1988, which was the 50th anniversary of this original production in 1960th. In 1928. And so we did that, and then I eventually I took that to the National Theatre. And that was extraordinary. So always dig and delve, delve deep. And when I go to a, a play, if I see the cur curtains open and somebody walks on the stage and talks, I want to run out. Yeah. I, 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 I want something that will astound me from the beginning. And realism, or not realism so much, it's just naturalism is the laziest form of thinking. Because if you're directing a play, though it can be, it can have some wonderful plays that, that can work with that. But if you're directing a play um, and you're only copying your life, it's a kind of you haven't penetrated deeper mm. into your unconscious. And that penetration is what makes thrilling theatre, and that makes the theatre like, you know, the old Bang Tangoff or Brotowski or Peter Brook and, um, and some of the Americans, the Living Theatre, for example, when I saw one of their productions, it was astonishing, called The Brig. You have to delve deep into your centre of your being, and then when you do, you eschew naturalism, because if you see someone walk on the stage, you want to say, get out! You don't do that. When the curtain opens on the stage, you just want to see a figure, frozen, maybe moving in slow motion, maybe not moving. And then others think, what is that? You want to excite. And that most theatre you see just bores the effing hell out of you. And if you do something different, if you try to explore this, which was called, in a way, a finding expressionism in theatre, finding this kind of super realism, fantasy, you're an outsider, and often they don't want you, 
was to um, bring shame to their own dead productions. And often when they've had a hit, mm -hmm. they insult you afterwards. Oh, yeah, we had to have Burkhoff here because we had a gap in the programming. And, you know, it's just not been, it's just horrible. What do you make of the moniker that you were, well, plays like yours in the age of uh, in your face theatre? Do you find that a derogatory term? Or did it just suit? Yeah, no, it's not really. I think it's like trying to show that it's very bold, it's bizarre, it's abrasive, it's, it, it really attacks you, it subjugates you, it grabs you, grabs mm -hmm. your attention. So if that means in your face, that's fine. I think that's, that's, that would be good. It could be called something else, I suppose. Are you, are you directing more theatre pieces for the future? Or are you worried about the future with all this COVID-19 jumping into everyone's trouble? Oh, I'm, I'm rather delighted. <laughs> Close them all down. <laughs> We start doing Zoom and Skype theatre. <laughs> yeah, because this allows the real creative talent to surface. I've seen on the Facebook and on the TV and bits Zoom, some opinions, attitudes um, from actors, political opinions, outrage about society, opinions about politics, about American, about Trump, about Boris Johnson, all from actors. Then soliloquies, monologues, jokes, short stories, all from actors. And I really hear we have this band of maybe 20, 30,000 actors who rarely get decent work and have to wait for John Tosser to come along and give them a lousy job. But when they're free, I've seen these marvellous inventions and marvellous kind of pieces of script they've come out with and impersonations and actors getting together. We don't need the directors and we don't need the producers. We don't need the theatres. This is a modern age. Let's get off this thing. About the theatre, darling. Oh, lovely. It is exciting. I heard somebody once say, about the theatre, a lovely man, Jonathan Hyde, lovely actor. He said, uh, are, you, are, you, are you still shouting at night? That's funny. That's what theatre is, Dan. Shouting at night. <laughs> and it could be all right, but if we don't have it, it doesn't matter because for us, that's a bonus. Because we don't want to, we don't want to kill ourselves. You see, the theatre is about a sacrifice, a sacrifice of your mind, your soul, your spirit, your ideas. But it's a sacrifice of the actor. The actor, except if you're at the national, you don't get paid that much. But anyway, has to do eight shows a week. And that's a killer. I mean, if you did six, that's quite a lot every single night. But that's you can accommodate that. And it can enjoy it because it can improve you. But then you've got a matinee and then an evening, then two days, evening, then another. And especially if you're, if you're bloody playing a huge part, it's killing the actor. So mm. we don't need your effing theatre. And we only do eight shows a week so that we can fill the pockets of the effing producer. Now, I went to the theatre about a year or two ago, maybe more. And I saw a play that was very, very well reviewed. Very well reviewed, with a very good actor in it. Great reviews, fantastic. Did a very physical performance. The kind of performance would be in one of my plays. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So I booked a ticket. I thought I don't want to be at the back. Sometimes you have to lay out a few bob. 
I booked a ticket. I think the stalls were like sixty pounds or something. Might be might be seventy pounds. So I go along to the box office. So here we are. I've got my tickets. So I'm so sorry, but that's now gone up to ninety pounds. What? I said, but I've paid. I paid this. I said yes, but that's a section of the seats now because of the reviews. Going great reviews. They can. Legitimately, although it's theft, it's it's skimming. Charge you more at the box office. So I thought, oh, you a dirty fucking producer. How dare you? Oh, you've got a big hit. Then be happy that you've got the prices as they are. Fill them. But you've got a big hit. Oh, oh, we must make the more because we can get more in. Mm. That was shameful. So I think good that your theatres are closed because I don't want to be fucking scammed by you when I go to the theatre. You tell me that box office. Oh, it's going to be a hundred or two hundred. That's shocking. But with actors and a few writers and a few maybe choreographers and dancers, we can use the medium of the television of the internet mm -hmm. and be free. And I can be free. And say, bravo, fantastic. To move uh, forward a little bit, your filmmaking, as you, I think you've said it a few times, it just helps pay the rent and provide you with the cash you need to do your, your projects yes. you love. Yes, yes. How did you find your Hollywood experience? Did you find it really hard over the years? I mean, you've done Beverly Hills Cop. You've done... I actually saw you the other night. I was watching Outland. I saw you getting shot in Outland. <laughs> Yeah. And for a nice guy who just had a psychotic moment because of some nasty drug. I don't you remember I, that song? Yes, I, I remember. Yeah, I only had a little scene. But it's a good little scene. Was Connery a, a friend? Was he a good associate of yours? Did you know him well? No, I didn't know him at all, but he was always charming. Yeah. yeah. Guy. Nice guy. Decent man. And did you find the same, though, with those blockbusters? I mean, you always played a great villain. I know you got typecast. You did, as I said, Rambo. I think you were the Russian villain uh, top yeah, Russian. Russian. Rambo 2. That's right, yes. Was that an interesting experience? Or was it just... Oh, yeah, every, every experience is interesting. Yeah. And it's fascinating because, you know, with films, they're, they're big shots, they're powerful industry, and suddenly you're sitting in your little squat. You know, this is my room here. This is where I live. And I've got a little... Put you up, so I put the bed down at night. So I've only got this. It's all I've got, really. And uh, so then you're taken off to a five-star hotel. Yeah. In Mexico. <laughs> oh, it's heavenly. It's, but then you go on the set, and there's, you see Stallone looking incredible, amazing. And so it's a fascinating experience. But then you might get an arsehole director, and you're trying things out. And he says, wow. What did you do that for? And I thought, schmuck, could you see what I did it for? You. And so then it becomes less pleasant. <laughs> you also, I, I saw, tell me if we go back to the 60s here, but you were in UFO back in the day. Which yes. Favourite yeah. of mine as a kid. And you did, you did a lot, you worked at Roger Moore well, long before you did Octopussy, because you were in the Saint a few times. Yes. Yeah, and, times. Did you find the, the British sensibility, again, that's, I think I watched a documentary with Moore talking about that. He said, like, it might have looked glamorous, but we were working on very tight budgets. 
and we had to work very fast. I mean, the opposite, polar opposite of Rambo, I would say. Oh, yes, oh, yes. But you, I think you were more on Octopussy then, I was saying, yeah. Was that another good experience? Oh, that was a good. We had a nice, nice director called, um, I think his name was Michael Jen or something like that. Not quite sure, something Jen. A uh, gentleman. See, in England, they're gentlemen. Yes. Very lovely directors, you know, they're, well, Stephen, you know, how would you feel? They they talk to you like you're kind of partners. And, and so with Roger Moore, everybody's a gentleman. And if you suggest something, they say, oh, you'd like to see that, would you? Like, that's a silly suggestion. They're charming <laughs> all the time. I've always found English directors totally charming, uh, helpful, very smart, and uh, very easy to get on with. American directors are so competitive there, you can't blame them altogether. They're so frightened of not getting the hit that they become panicky and they become hyper uh, neurotic and uh, they can become a little bit difficult, but not all. Because in Beverly Hills Club, I worked with this lovely guy, I think it was his first film even, maybe, second, second film, Martin Brest. And he was absolutely charming and easy and clever and said the right words to me. I just do a scene, try to give it a little bit of, you know, mm -hmm. he says, do it less, less. You know, you got the power, you don't do anything, you do less. So I did less, did a lot less. And he said, do even less. <laughs> How can I get less? <laughs> I don't know how to get so right there. Well, it said it's a big screen. You yeah, know. I did a lot less. Like I couldn't give a fuck about who is this. And that worked. <laughs> He was clever, Martin Bress. God bless you, Mr. Bress. I know you've retired now, but oh, what a great man. I think you can see when a director works with actors by yeah. the, the energy and performance you get. He also did a film, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, called Midnight Run. With oh, fantastic. And fantastic. Beautiful movie. Yeah. Um, so more recent films, including the, the one you've done, um, you've, I, I looked at your IMDb account. You've got about six or seven things in pre-production or post-production. You're a very busy man. Between, I don't know, cameos and others. Uh, Little cameos, yeah. Do you enjoy those? Yeah, they're good. In maybe a couple of days, you and a few, Bob. You know, because I don't get employed much. You know, I don't, I'm not in the, you know, the top ten. Uh, the list, you know, not one of the gang, you know. Well, you did the tourist there. Uh, I know. Well, that, was good. That, that was uh, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. And he, he picked me. And I thought, well, he's, that's nice. He picked me. And again, I got a good salary for it. But here, I don't get employed that much, especially in the theatre. I don't care about that because mm -hmm. I have to do my own theatre. So I have to raise the money. Then at least you're independent and you own your own rights. Yes. You work with others. They just ghastly. I sometimes do work for others as an exercise. I mean, about five or six years ago, I did a play for a little theatre in London because that was a well-written play. Mm -hmm. And then they said they're going to pay me, I think it was £400 a week. And I thought, that will pay my cab fare. There and back. And I thought, I'll do it. And if they wanted eight shows a week out of you. So I thought, well, I think it's seven or seven or eight. I thought, I'll do it to punish myself for all the films where I've had easy money and have not pushed myself. And this 
play, I really had to just excavate myself because I was playing Saddam Hussein. Okay. Was, yeah, fabulous performance. But I had to do it with a room full of actors. A dressing room shared with six or five actors. And I had a little space that was for my, my makeup and my wig in there. And I liked it because it was like being poor. <laughs> being like a student in a digs. And he had a little space when I went to Israel once and I was working in Israel and we had a room between four of us. So I had just a width of my match of my, you know, duvet. And that was nice because here's my cigarettes and here's my book. And of course, I'm <laughs> kind of like that. I thought I must suffer to pay for the indulgence. So I suffered for eight weeks. And it was the most horrible experience. I've had in years, but I got through it, and that was good. <laughs> <laughs> so you're unspoiled. We can safely say that. <laughs> I would say that. Yeah, I would say that. But again, a lot of these, you're not getting these roles for no reason. I think a lot of people would have a, a, a big admiration for you. Uh, film fans as well as theatre fans, because yes. of performances. Uh, one film that you always stuck in my mind for some ungodly reason was your performance in The Craze. I thought you were you you were fantastic. Really? Yeah, and and it, and it was a small role. It was a cameo yeah. role almost in that, but it was a very interesting character. I mean, yeah, yeah, it, was, very interesting. Was he wandering around the world when you were growing up? <laughs> I didn't know him. No, I not not for me. I hope you maybe heard of him. I mainly heard of the craze. Yeah, because I used to see them in the dance halls. Wow, they were always they were always in the Royal Tottenham dance hall in Tottenham. And I used to say he was just to kind of stand around, always had a suit on. And they never danced. They used to chat. And I never see people talk so much. <laughs> They'd be there, there's kind of, I used to go to the matinee at the Royal Tottenham. And they were often there at the matinee because it's a nice time to go, you know, for a bit of fun to just relax. And I see them leaning against the wall and they're talking to their mates. And I'm looking for the girls. And, and they're still talking, talking, and I'm dancing with this girl, dancing with that girl, dancing, doing a jive and all that. And they're still talking and talking and talking. I never met people talk so much. It was their office. <laughs> yeah, that was their office. And sometimes I, I see them. I see them at the Lyceum. Wow. Did you, were you aware of their reputation? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They got carried. I mean, like the character you played in real life, he was a victim of the fact that they just got too comfortable with the fact that they thought they owned the place. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. They did. Um, and he did got particularly vicious uh, killing. Oh, costly. And uh, yeah. how did you, Peter Medlock again, he's an, an old pro in um, British cinema. A nice director. He's he's a very interesting director. Did you enjoy working with him at that time? I did. A very nice guy because he lets you do whatever you want, <laughs> and then he he loves it. He he was delightful. Whatever you did, he, he laughed. It made you feel good. Yeah. Whatever you did, it's fine. And he might say, Stevie, why don't you? But very rarely. I say he was a charming guy, charming man. I think the only person he ever had trouble with was Peter Sellers, who was a great friend of his. I think he did, did a pirate film with him that went south. I think oh, yeah, yeah. He made a documentary about it, yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yes. I know you did a monologue on Weinstein there last year. Did that go well for you? Oh, yeah, it did. I got, got a bit unhappy with it. I called it Harvey. I was a bit kind of, I suddenly had a thing about lines. And if I thought, I've got to get the lines, I've got to get the lines. I did get the lines. But then sometimes I, I forget. And I'd have a script. I'd say, hold on. There's something I've got to find out. That's my lines. They're trying to make a humor of it. I got a bit panicky. I thought, I'm getting a bit old. Maybe I'm losing the lights. So I did it. Uh, that was over a year ago. But it was exciting to do because I wrote it. And I really worked hard on it. And when I was working on it, I thought, God, this is fantastic stuff. But I got a bit let down. So I might even try it again. But I made a DVD of it. Mm -hmm. I videoed it. Oh, okay. Yeah, so if you want a DVD of it, just call in. I shall indeed. Uh, and tell me this, I mean, like, monologues are hard at the best of times. I, I don't, I think you should be um, very proud of, of the work. Because I know people in their 20s and they couldn't do a monologue. <laughs> oh, yeah, monologue's great. Because you're free. It's like you're diving into a deep sea. And you don't have an actor next to you saying, Oh, would you, you trod on my line, you know, on my laugh. <laughs> trod on my laugh. Oh, God, for God's sake. You always having both. Some actors are lovely, delightful to work with, and you share a bit of the nerves. If you have, I have worked with an actor recently called Jay Benedict, who was a very good. He died just recently of the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. He's sixty-eight or something. Oh. shocking! And he died. I couldn't believe oh. it. And some actors are wonderful to work with. It's again to get that magic, that collaboration, the sense of people understanding it's the it's the play, as Shakespeare would say, and said, and how the play is the thing. It's it's a hard muscle. The ego gets in the way an awful lot. And and how do you deal with that when you're working as a director? Well, when you're directing, I feel very happy because I feel I'm really being totally creative and making it exciting for the actors. And to bring out of the actors things they've never done. And I don't think I've ever directed one play in the last 50 years where actors, at least one or all, have not come up to me and said, God, this is the most exciting theatre to be in. I've loved it, whether it's been Coriolanus or whether it's been Kafka's The Trial, Metamorphosis, Salome, whatever. They love it because I've tried to give them something because when I see how actors are so ill-used by directors yeah. so abused, so ill-used just standing there I was working with an actor a lovely guy, he was my understudy in Greek and then I went to see him, he was playing in some production at the National I think it was one of the Shakespeare's and he was just standing there well, the scissors are bleeding out of And he was standing there. And I count, almost counted five minutes, six minutes. And the actor was going, oh, go on. I couldn't do that on a yeah. stage. I couldn't, for the life of me, have an actor just stand there. And the guy who had that directed that should be put to sleep or put away in, a, in some sanatorium be retrained. You can't use human beings like that. And I saw it again and again. And I saw it in the production of Artur Ui, which was the very good actor, uh, Anthony Sher playing Arturo. And there's a scene 
in the crowd and he was acting away and um, there was a woman with a child and she's holding the child like that. So he was, you know, he had made a very good attempt at it and it was very good. But I did query why was a woman standing there for 10 minutes holding a child and I couldn't watch him anymore. I kept looking at the child and the woman was worried the child's getting restless so she kept touching him, like stroking him. And I thought, how dare you? I mean, I get mad about that. I get over I mad. Understand. It's, you're at your most naked on a stage. Yes, I say, how dare you use that child like that? I almost wanted to shout. I used to shout in, in the theatre. I used to go to see shows and get up shouting. And really? Run out. Yeah, it's a bit, bit crazy there. Any famous ones? <laughs> Any famous shouting? <laughs> yes. I shouted. I saw Peter Brooks' production of Oedipus. Okay. And when at the end, I thought it was quite good. And he, but it was a lot of very derivative movement, which he got from the living theatre. It was all right. Some good bits. But at the end, as they do in the Greek trilogies, they end with a kind of a satiric movement, a kind of fate, a kind of, you know, pantomime of some kind, apparently. Mm -hmm. And he rolled on this big thing, and then there's a, with a cloth on it, huge. And then they pulled the cloth off, and it was a gigantic golden penis. <sighs> the audience was silent, some tittering, a bit shocked. And then the actors danced around the penis to some kind of tune like, oh, when the saints come marching in. And I'm not a prude, but I thought this was very bit university kind of, you know, it's got something that I'm going to be smart here. Maybe it was good. I don't know. Didn't like it. Uh, maybe it's me. Maybe there is a prudishness. But then I got up and shouted, rubbish. But I screamed with all my volume. I was in the dress circle. <laughs> the huge howling. <laughs> I walked out. And then uh, two or three years later, I was doing a little play in the West End, known as Fringe Theatre, called In the Penal Settlement by Franz Kafka. Mm-hmm. And I thought I'd ask Peter Brook, because he doesn't know it was me in the stream. <laughs> so he came along. I did my play, gave it everything. And then, he, you know, he came, came actually to see it. And I liked him for that. Although he didn't talk to me afterwards. Maybe yeah, he found yeah. out I was the person. But that, that, that's the only time I've done that. Uh. <laughs> ah! Ah, uh, Peter Brooks is well able, or was well able. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to love him. Uh, he did some of the best productions I've ever seen. Yeah, um, I, 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 I love this. His, uh, his film work is quite interesting. In Lord of the Rings, oh, yes, is yes. One I would kind of, it's a very unusual film still. Still quite I mean, powerful. King, King Lear with Paul Schofield. Yeah. The big beginning of it is phenomenal. Um, Schofield himself, though, was just an amazing actor. It's incredible. Wonderful voice. Great stillness. Wonderful simplicity. Humility. Just just a wonderful actor. 
Listen, I'm going to let I'm going to say thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Um, too. You I, too. I hope it goes well. Ah, and, thank uh, you. Thank you so well, much for your time. Well, I, hope, I hope a lot of people from Ireland come and book. You're going to be streaming soon. Hopefully, the Genesis Cinema in the East End. But we've got it on DV now, and I'm going to offer anybody who buys this. It's a fabulous film. I don't I don't have to sell it, but we need to kind of make people aware of it, I will throw in a signed book. Oh, really nice. Yeah. Well, I'll have to buy a copy myself, so. Yeah, I will throw in a signed book. Excellent. I've written a lot of books, and they're all sitting on my shelves. Um, have you, one of your memoirs, is it? Or your novel? Yeah, it's a memoir of working with Ronnie Biggs in Brazil. You know, the train robber. What's that one called? It's called Prisoner in Rio. Okay, well, that'll be the one I'll be after when I buy a copy, okay? Okay, then. Good to talk to you, Paul. Stephen, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Bye-bye for now. I like Bewley's Coffee Shop in Dublin. Oh, did you not hear? It's gone. It's gone. gone. Yeah. How could the Irish government let that? That's Uh, a treasure.